All right, please do open up to 2 Samuel chapter 16. In the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 267, and you'll need that open. We're on our journey. This was 3,000 years ago, uh, but God's invited us. He has invited us to reflect and to read and to study and to meditate on his works, uh, on his ways, on his wisdom. Um, it's, it's never really, when we open up God's word during this time, it's never merely... Uh, a lesson, like, for instance, here in this historic narrative, just to, you know, enlighten ourselves about what happened in ancient Near, Near Eastern history in Israel or in other parts of the world. It's not merely a lesson in history or even a lesson in morality. Uh, looking at people's lives and saying, yeah, that's not wise or that's foolish or that's commendable or that's, that's beautiful. Uh, it, it's, it's not less than that, but it, it is more than that when we look at uh, people's choices. Last February, <coughs> excuse me, I had a chance with uh, my kids and my college roommate who came up. We went to Vermont to Okemo uh, to go skiing. And uh, at the top of one of those lifts, you can actually climb another, I don't know, 200 feet up to a, a fire tower. And atop that fire tower on a bluebird day like we experienced that day, it's amazing. You can see, I think, I, I want to say it's like six different states and like six or seven different other ski resorts and mountains. And the view is just stunning. I mean, it's probably 60 feet up, a little bit treacherous when you're just walking around with these, um, <coughs> excuse me, these ski boots on and the wind's blowing. It's a, it's a cool experience. And I think that that vista, that experience of looking out is part of what we do when we climb in and dive in to study God's word. We're trying to get a, a different look, a, a, an enhanced perspective, a uh, an outlook, a, a window into how it is that God works. We call it sometimes this larger uh, story, the meta-narrative. Meta it's an unfolding larger story that doesn't have just at the center uh, humanity. Uh, it, although we are, uh, you know, the, the, the prize of God's, you know, we're the part of God's creation that is distinct being made in his image. But nevertheless, there is this, we get these glimpses into a greater story of redemption with this great hero, this God-man, uh, the Messiah, the appointed Christ who comes and reigns as king of the universe, Jesus Christ. Now remember, this is where we are in 2 Samuel chapter 16 in this particular era of time. It's a thousand years before Christ. Eventually, though, the Hebrews the, who were promised uh, the favor and blessing of God, they were promised a Lord, a land, a legacy, um, God's making true on that. Part of it is to appoint for them a king. They get a king, Saul. Uh, he's a lot like the other kings, uh, but that's not a good thing. And uh, God replaces him over time with uh, this young, unassuming uh, King David. He is just a, a, a young boy, uh, a, a youth who is a shepherd. God makes him the king. We're, we're at the tail end of David's life. He's almost 70 probably. He's reign, reigned for 40 years. Some 20 years prior, we know that he did fall into sin, a grievous sin that um, had many, many impacts and ramifications that he had to live with literally the rest of his life. In fact, it was the prophet Nathan who told him, listen, your house will be, back in chapter 12, we read, your house will be divided. The sword will be there and there will be uh, suffering and pain. There's other things by way of a curse that he pronounced and we're actually going to see the manifestation of it. Now, one of those is just the effect on his family. He had some kids that were really, really bad. One of those is Absalom. Absalom, uh, we know, was on the cover of GQ magazine uh, dozens of times over. Uh, the, 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 the handsome guy that he was, 
uh, from, his head to his, to, from his head to his toe, he was the, the best-looking man in all of Israel. He had a particular uh, distinguishing characteristic, which was his gorgeous, large, curly hair. Um, he exacts revenge on uh, his brother uh, for what you could argue were just causes, but he took matters in his own hands instead of trusting uh, God's law or God's king. He's in exile. He's brought back, hardly welcome back, like the, uh, the lost son in Luke 15. Uh, he is welcomed back by King David, but he knows that uh, there's very little likelihood that he will be the next king, and, and he knows that his relationship uh, is affected with his father. So Absalom decides his ambition grows, his influence grows, his resources grow, and he decides that he, after stealing the hearts of many of the men and women of Israel, he is going to conspire to take out his father. What does David do? David, who's the presently king, says, no, uh, I, I'm not going to you know, have a showdown here. And he decides to take his entire household and many of his supporters and make their way uh, to the Jordan, which is to say they're leaving uh, not only Jerusalem, but the country to be in exile for his time. Why? Because David doesn't want to see Jerusalem ransacked and he doesn't want to see all the devastating effects of that. To make matters worse, Absalom, not only does he uh, conspire to take out his father David, he actually works alongside of his, his trusted friend, his father's trusted counselor friend, um, Ahithophel, who was this wise man. As opposed to staying, like I said, and engaging in battle, he departs to save Jerusalem from desolation. He heads out. Almost all of his household, a small remnant, hold back. In some ways, what we got a glimpse of last week and in these chapters is the old David. The David who uh, was, was not uh, you know, sucked of life and, and leadership because of his sin. He's actually making and taking steps, not of passivity, but creative, active uh, you know, steps of faith. And so what we see here is he's less defeated. He's more full of faith. He cries out to God. How can I continue? And God, you know, helps him. God provides a friend uh, in this, this man, uh, Hushai the uh, Archite, and, uh, and he's going to go be a spy. So we read about that in chapter 15. Hushai is going to go back into Jerusalem and, uh, and be a spy to provide, uh, along with two others, some intel for David who's outside of the country and city. So we're going to go over actually three chapters. I'm not going to read all of it. Um, I'm sure you're happy to hear that. But uh, maybe, maybe you could stand in deference to God's word. <coughs> this is 2 Samuel chapter 16. Follow with me if you would. This is the word of God. When David had passed a little beyond the summits, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, hearing 200 lo- carrying, or bearing 200 loaves of bread, hundreds, a hundred bu- uh, bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruit and a skin of wine. The king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread, the summer fruit are for the young men to eat and the wine are for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kings of my father. So that, that's not true. Uh, that, that's, that he's deceived him to think that Mephibosheth, his adopted crippled son, uh, this, this servant, Ziba, says, yeah, he's back in Jerusalem because he's going to be loyal to uh, Absalom and, and Saul. Behold that the king 
said to Ziba, Behold, that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. So David says, You can have it then. If he's betrayed me, you can have it. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Now, verse 5, when the king came to Baharum, he came and a man of, a, of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerar. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David. And all the servants of the king and all the people and all the mighty men uh, were on the, his right hand and his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you. You are, named, you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, uh, said to the king, why should, the dead, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, uh, what, I, what I have to do with you, the sons of Zariah? If, we, or if he cursed because the Lord has said to him, curse David, well then who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on, his, on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along hillside, opposing him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and, they were, and he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people of the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with them. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. Okay, verse 17, he's suspicious, naturally, okay? He says to him, and Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for what the Lord and the people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you, Absalom, he's referring. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, well, give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all of Israel will hear that you made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. This is at the palace. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will rise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him when he is weary and discouraged and throw him into panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down the king and I will bring all the people back as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. We'll pause there. You may be seated. Let me ask God's help, though. Father, as we dive into your word, would you give us a window, a perspective, an understanding of your character, of our hearts, of our needs, our hopes, 
Uh, Lord, our future. Uh, Give us a window into your glory and to your truth. Would you uh, grant to us both physically and, and moreover spiritually an attentiveness to the fruit of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just continue to recap the events with some reading um, through these chapters because we're going to get through what's covered in chapter 19, verse 8. And I want to summarize some of the gaps in between as I read, and then I want to go into three questions that are listed there in the order of service. So I'm going to continue to read. Absalom, by the way, ends up following Hushai's advice next. Not Ahithophel, but Hushai's advice to gather up armies and to gather up allegiance, and that will end up buying, okay, he didn't go with the Ahithophel's strategic advice, which was wise, uh, not the part about uh, uh, the violence and the, the grandstanding with his, uh, his, his uh, father David's house and concubines, but the advice about just target David, take your time, uh, do, do this. It buys, it, it was a wise approach, take him out while he's weary, go get him right now. But the alternative, Hushai brings this advice, he follows that, and that ends up buying some time for David, and he can send messengers. Hey, let's, let's, you know, let's get out of here. Let's find you know, safety. Hithophel is deeply troubled that his advice was not followed. He goes, and he knows uh, there's going to be consequences. He ends up taking his own life. He ends up hanging himself uh, in a tree. So let's, let's look a little further down into chapter 17, and we'll pick up in verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order, hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to um, uh, Mahanim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amos, excuse me, uh, Amos over the army instead of Joab. Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, the sister of Zariah, Joab's brother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, and Rahab of the Ammonites, and Machar, the son of Amiel, and Lodabar, and Bazarali, the Gilead, and the Golem, brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese for, from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army one-third under his command of Joab and one-third under his command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third over the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, no, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will never care about us. But you, referring to David, are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while the army marched out hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Hittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And the people heard when the king gave them all the commanders about and concerning Absalom. So 
this is where it's spread. This is where we are. Um, who's, like I said, the best man, the best looking man in Israel? Well, it is Absalom. Absalom is the, the wannabe king and the son of the real king. And, and it is his hair. Now, let's, let's continue uh, in verse 9 of, of chapter 18. This is, this, is what, this is where we're going to pick back up. Absalom happened to meet uh, the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, right? And, un- and went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule was under him and went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Well, then why didn't you strike him here to the ground? I would have gladly given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But it's going to take a little more for me to kill somebody than that. But anyway, keep going. But then the man said to Joab, Even if I had felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste uh, my time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, thrust him into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak, and ten young men. Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Scripture does have irony, doesn't it? Scripture has all kinds of twists and, and surprises, sarcasm, irony. Many knew of David's wishes that Absalom be captured alive, not, not to be killed. They also know that David is a very emotional, volatile uh, person when it comes to these things. So there's actually two messengers sent to David post-Absalom you know, hanging in this tree. And he sends these two messengers... And one of them is a Cushite. And we'll pick up at the end of chapter 18. Find verse 31, if you could, into verse 19, chapter 19. And behold, the Cushite came and the Cushite said, Good news for the Lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose against you. The king said to the Cushite, It is well with you, young man, Absalom. And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise against you for your, for, for you, evil be like that young man. In other words, he's dead and may everybody else be dead like him. How does David respond? Well, look at verse 13. And David was deeply moved and went into the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son. Chapter 19, it was told to Joab. Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. Essentially, what goes on to happen from there is he continues to grieve. But he says, listen, if you keep grieving, David, uh, your, your, your own men and army are going to be confused and disappointed that they went to battle for you. Uh, you should be uh, concealing some of this or, or changing your tone a little bit. 
Here are my three questions. Why is uh, the king weary? Why is the king winning? And why is the king weeping? Each place I want to consider how it is in trying to answer these from our text, how it is that God actually, far more than we can imagine, God is bigger. God is bigger than you can imagine. Uh, in, in, In so many ways and in so many fronts, he is bigger than your problems. God is bigger than your shame. Uh, God is bigger than, than your limitations or even the depths of your grief. Do you believe that? I, I do. I struggle to believe it. Do you believe that God is in control? Can I get an amen? Um, why then is the king weary? In three different references, chapter 16, verse 14, and twice in chapter 17, verse 2 and 29, they make reference to, the narrator does, highlighting David's weariness. Others amongst him were tired. In some instances, referring to how they needed food, rest, refreshment, and how God provided. Why is David weary? Well, some of the reasons are pretty obvious. David's old. Um, Sorry to those of you who are 70 or plus. Um, David is in exile. David is, David is, you know, David is facing, uh, you know, uh, he's far from home. He has got limitations. He's still commanding armies. He's still trying to, uh, to hide. He's still trying to survive. And so in addition to that, and those obvious physical reasons, though, there are some deep emotional struggles. And if we put ourselves in his shoes, we can imagine how bad this is. David has been fighting. David has been leading. David has been serving, um, and he's exhausted. Uh, David is weary because David, King David, cares about people. And there's, there's people who are weary because they're self-absorbed. David is, is tired because he cares about people. And now he's been betrayed, not only by his own son, and, and so he thinks his own adopted son, Mephibosheth, which wasn't true, but he's definitely, been, he's definitely been betrayed by Ahithophel and his own son, Absalom. Then chapter 16 introduces, that's the first part I read, these two peculiar people. These two peculiar challenges. One of them is cunning uh, and, and, and the other uh, is cursing. Uh, one is come, his name is Ziba. That was at the opening of chapter 16. Like I said, convinced him that Mephibosheth had turned on him. So he, he, he can get all of his stuff. Word to the wise, if people give you big gifts, uh, unex, unexpected, uh, very, very large gifts, uh, they, they, there might be some manipulation. There, there may be some flattery. Even David was like, why all of this? And, uh, and then we found out. He found out. And then there's this character. This guy's trying to manipulate him, Ziba. Then you have this other character, uh, Shimei. Sticks and stones may break my bones. But words will never hurt me. Well, both are going on in this one. He's, he's throwing rocks at the king. He's, he's cursing. He's a Benjamite. He's not from Judah. He doesn't care as much about David. He's more in line with Saul. And he's pronouncing these curses on, on David. You know what it's like, right? He's saying, look, you, you know, you're guilty. You, David, are unworthy. And there's obviously an element of truth. He says you're, you're a murderer. And that is true. David had taken, but that happened 20 years ago, and David has been restored. David has been re- restored in fellowship with God and forgiven by God. 
You know how it is when you're criticized. What are you tempted to do when you're criticized? Well, it's one of two extremes. Oftentimes we just avoid it and say, uh, so what? So well, see ya. Are they made that, that might lead you into some resentment. But, you know, there's just I'm going to avoid. Or you just wither away and say, yeah, it's, you know, it's all true and I'm worthless and I'm depressed. You could go to another extreme and say, well, if you're going to criticize me, huh, boy, you throw those, those arrows at me. I got something coming right back at you. Are you ready? I'm going to attack you. David doesn't really do either. And he even has compassion. He says, look to this guy, Shimei. Yeah, he's loyal to Saul. This is what he thinks God's led him to do. And then what is, he, what is recorded here in verse 12 of chapter 16? It may be that the Lord will look upon the wrong done to me and that the Lord will, will, will repay me with good for his cursing today. David knows there's an element of truth to the criticism, right? So he doesn't have to rage, nor does he have to be despondent. But he also knows that some of what has been shared is not true. It's not, God is not going to stand for David being removed. God, God has already promised that David's throne and his, his household will last and the monarchy will be there. David knows there's an element of truth, but he also knows that God has his bigger purposes. David is confident of what God has promised. He can barely see it. He's having a hard time believing it, I'm sure, on the days of his weariness. I said it last week in dealing with this. David has to deal with the weight and the weight. And by that, I mean the weight, the W-E-I-G-H-T, the, the weight right, of, of suffering and sin. And, and yes, some of that suffering that David is enduring right now is a result of his own sinful choices and consequences of those, right? But then there's another element he's being sinned against, and that, then he has to live under the weight, the W-A-I-T, which is patiently enduring over times of uncertainty. And you know how that is too. We know what that feels like, don't we? Oh, may it be of some encouragement to you. Have you been mistreated? Have you been misunderstood? Have you been sharply criticized, even betrayed? Of course you have. And young, t- young people, it's coming. How can you grow through it? I didn't say how can you avoid it. It's not possible unless you just choose to be altogether separate from relationships. So how can you grow through it? At the very least, we need to grapple with these things by faith. The facts are... Chapter 16, verse 14, David went and it says he refreshed himself at the Jordan, which clearly, you know, like he wanted to relax. He needed to clean up. He needed to, you know, uh, enjoy hopefully some fish or something. But I know there's more to that. And I know that when David talks about the refreshment that he has, in fact, I said it was last week's homework. Maybe you did it. Maybe you didn't. Here's a chance to get some extra credit. Go read Psalm 3. It's only a few verses. I think maybe eight verses altogether. What does it have for you there? The very words of David in response to this time, this struggle. And he cries out, Lord, how many are my foes? And yet, what does he say? It's all right. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Why is he weary? Some of it is obvious, physical. Some of it's emotional. 
he's weary. He's been cursed. He's been, he, he's, you know, he's been betrayed. Why is he winning, though? Why is, why, is he, why is he victorious? Even when he gets bad counsel, even when he doesn't have enough discernment to make good choices. <laughs> he's, I mean, he is, he's tripping along here. It, 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 this, is, this is not coming out clean and obvious, and, but he is victorious. And Proverbs 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans of a man, but the purpose of the Lord will, will always stand. Absalom, Shimei, many people have cursed and opposed God's anointed king, David, here. This is always a mistake. David knew it. That's why he didn't, he didn't go against Saul. He's not like Absalom. We know that David's character is open to criticism. We know that David had to walk through the severe consequences of his sinful, selfless choices. But oh, how God's love rested on him. It should be mysterious to us, and it is, that God's forgiveness and reconciliation was full and rich for David. The purpose of the Lord will stand. God had chosen David and David's lineage to reign over the kingdom forever. That's why David is winning. Because God, not David. Yes, David has a strategy. Yes, David has discipline. Yes, David is patient and prayerful. And that's part of his victory. But it's ultimately the purposes of the Lord at work in his providence here. But ironically, even when David is hiding far from the throne, God shows that he is on the throne. I say ironically because there's really two big ironies that are at work and at play here in these three chapters. The first was because of part of the curse. If you'll remember that that 20 years ago when I said, you know, Nathan said, there's going to be a curse over your house and the sword will never depart it. He even said something extremely specific. Nathan said that there will be a time, behold, I will raise up evil against you and your own household, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and you shall lie with your wives. They shall lie with your wives in the sight of men. In other words, what happened when, when Ahithophel said, Absalom, go back to the palace and sleep with your father's concubines? It was, it was not just a, an act of, of sensuality and violence, it was actually a, a power grab. It was actually to, to do that, to, to add further shame. And yeah, it was part of God's plan. I, that's a mystery to me. It was an evil that God allowed it, that would say, Absalom, I'm going and I have gained the right and the power. I have the throne. I'm in charge now. It was his way of saying that. Ahithophel counseled David this way to show power. David... When he heard of this, you know, what, what, at what point did he just say, you know, David just had to say to himself, man, you just get kicked enough times. I, I'm done. I, I quit. It's over. I, I Fine. I, what do you want to call me? I'm a loser. But God had his hand on David. And even when David lacked some degree of discernment with Ziba in chapter 16, and then even allowing the, the troops, his own men, to see him weeping over Absalom, God does not allow for even David to get in the way. Do you ever think about that? Some of you struggle. You think it's, it's too much. You know, my sin, my shame, 
It's too great. God can't work in, through, around, or redeem this. And that's just not true. It's not accurate at all to God's plan and story. God does not allow for David to get in the way. If you, my friends, are united to to God's King and Messiah, there is victory. There's victory over, over foes and criticisms. There's victory in the face of discouragement. But victory, more importantly, over the greatest enemy that all of us must face. Sin, death, hell, the grave. It's not just dying. It's that there, if there is no resurrection, then there is no hope beyond that. The second irony here, the first irony is that this happened on the roof where all of this began when David was not where he was not supposed to be and fell into sin and temptation with lust. The second irony, of course, 2 Samuel 18, 9, look at verse 9, Absalom happened, that happened. <laughs> God's hand is here too, ironically. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended. Isn't this interesting? The very thing that Absalom is probably proud of, uh, his hairstyle, everyone, frankly, thought he was the young, handsome, uh, he's already stolen the hearts of men and presumably women in Israel, and now he's hanging, ironically, by that big, beautiful hair in a tree. They're not supposed to take him out. They see him. Joab, though, is a sensible man. This is a foe who is hell-bent on threatening God's appointed, and I'm going to take him out. He takes him and runs a spear through him. So why is, why is he winning? Why is David winning? Well, because God's in control. Bad advice, good advice, uh, foolish you know, counsel, wise counsel, shame, guilt, consequences. God is still working to grant to David and his household this victory. Why is the king weeping? Well, some of the reasons for this, this is my last question, are tied to the first question, because really the bookends of this passage and this, uh, this portion are just that. There is weariness and weeping. And some of them are obviously in, connect, in connection. David is weary. David is weeping. There's emotional turmoil that's interconnected, as anyone would imagine, to his own exhaustion and his own tears. He's grieving specifically here his son's death, Absalom. Maybe in a bit too much of a public way. Like I said, Joab said, David, listen, with all due respect, if you keep crying like this, you're going to demoralize your men. They may even turn on you. In grieving his son's death, he ironically says at the very close of chapter 18... I think it's the last verse of chapter 18. If you'll turn there. And the king was deeply moved, went into the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, who, who would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son? Absalom dies because of his sin. Because of his rebellion, because of his opposition and attacking God's anointed king, he was a sinner like his father. But unlike David, he had no faith. David knows that he cannot 
Certainly not at this juncture. David knows that he cannot be a substitute for his son. There's things that have happened that are not to be undone. They cannot be undone. Do you have things in your life? Don't even need to ask. What are the things in your life that you wish you could undo? Oh, but don't you worry. God's put some people in your life that'll help you remember. And don't you love those people? I've been on the giving and receiving end of that. Friend of mine, he loves Jesus. But he ruined his marriage and his family because of infidelity. Because passion flows a lot easier than clarity. He was forgiven by God, but not his wife. And the consequences are painful. I wrote to him a couple weeks ago for a variety of reasons and for a variety of friends. I wrote him, I feel heavy hearted today. He who called us is able. We're not able. For those who are in Christ, here is a good word from Horatius Bonar on the cross-shaped life. He's an old Scottish uh, minister. I said, for some reason, it gives me hope, my friend, even in the wait and in the wait. The road, Horatius writes, to the kingdom is not so pleasant and comfortable and easy and flowery as many dream. It's not a bright, sunny avenue of palms. It's not paved with triumph, though it is to end in victory. The termination is glory, honor, immorality. But on the way, there is the thorn in the flesh, the sackcloth and the cross. Recompense later, but labor here. Rest later, but weariness here. Joy and security later, but endurance and washfulness here. The race, the battle, the burden, the stumbling block, and oftentimes the heavy heart. It's Absalom's ambition to be the king. It was not David's ambition to be the king. David was anointed, called, chosen by God. David was given the kingdom. David doesn't want to be the king, except that God wants him to be the king. David wants to see and serve. He wants you and me. Go read the Psalms and you'll figure this out anew and afresh, perhaps. David wants you and me and he as well to see and serve the real king, the true king, who is Yahweh. And the promise of Messiah. Aren't you so grateful that there was another king who came? David's greater son. The promised redeemer. He came. And he gained victory. But it was a peculiar path. He, Christ, obeyed God's law perfectly. And then he was betrayed. He he was mistreated. Just like David, he was misunderstood, sharply criticized, accursed, accused. The parallels are many. Except 
He, Jesus, did die as our substitute. Jesus doesn't cry only if it had been me instead of my son. No. Jesus did die as our substitute for us, even in our desire. When we were wanting to be king, when we wanted to rule and, and lord our lives and we were living and we are tempted in our rebellion. Jesus was t- thinking all the while, even as Jenny testified, I'm not that bad. I like the Ten Commandments, except when they get in my way. I'm basically a good person. I deserve better. No, we're all seeking the mercy of a king who is a substitute. Jesus was hung in a tree and had a sword run through him, but he wasn't paying for his sins. He was paying for our sins. He was purchasing our forgiveness, our victory with his death and resurrection. Folks, take hope, take refuge in the person and work of Jesus who walked and wept. David is suffering because of his choices and sins. Jesus came and suffered not for his sins, but for ours on a shameful cross outside the city. And now we're called as followers of Christ to bear some of that suffering. Not, not, not that we could ever pay for our sins. We won't and we cannot. But to live in gratitude for him and for our blessed hope, the king's return. I said it last week, success, safety, comfort. That is not our hope. <laughs> Let me say it again. Success and safety and Comfortability, that is not our hope. Our hope is in God, who is our salvation. Lamentations puts it well. Lamentations 3.31, for the Lord will not, and let me say this to you, if you feel like all I keep running into is the consequences and the shame and the guilt and the reminders, and I, and I might as well just quit. I just want to remind you of this in Lamentations 3. Looking also at the life of David here, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of men. Friends, first to last, first to last, we cannot save ourselves. We must surrender. We must surrender and trust in a Savior who is outside of us and to others. Jesus, the King of Kings. Would you pray with me before we come to the Lord's table? Father, thank you for the reminders um, of the frailty of life and the futility of sin. Lord, you know our hearts even better than we do. Would you please forgive us, God? Woo us back through your spirit to that foundational and glorious gospel message and your great power. Would you grow in us both humility and and boldness. Lord, we pray for those in our midst and those that we are close to who need your healing touch physically, emotionally. Would you bring rest to those who are weary, who need and desire peace and strength and contentment? Lord, you told us that weakness is not something we should despise. For when we are weak, then you We are strong through your strength. So we'll boast in that, Lord. Pray, I pray today for those who grieve even as we approach 
in the weeks and months ahead, the holidays, those who especially grieve the loss of loved ones. Lord, I pray today for area churches that faithfully preach the gospel. For those who stand on your word, I pray specifically, even here in Hanson, for Calvary Baptist and First Congregational. Bless their leadership. Grant to them unity and their commitment to you and to loving one another. Raise up more churches, Lord, to preach the gospel and to live out that good news. Comfort those who are collecting right now just the pieces of the, of the sadness of war. Grant to people who are tempted towards bitterness in Israel and Palestine and elsewhere. Lord, we pray for justice, for peace. We pray for the hearts of those who plan to do evil, that you would restrain that, that you would come back, Jesus. Please give us hope. Please shower us on us mercy. Give us love for our neighbors. In Jesus' name. Even now, as Jesus taught his disciples, saying together, Our Father...